So today I'm speaking with Yael Lipschitz, who is a lecturer at King's College in London, and we're going to talk about a couple of her articles and her broader research on the field of private energy. So the two articles that we'll be discussing today, one is titled Private Energy, and it is in the Stanford Environmental Law Journal, and the other one is titled Winds of Change, Drawing on Water Law Doctrines to Establish Wind Law, and that's from the NYU Environmental Law Journal. So thanks so much for joining us, Yao. Thanks for having me. Okay, so why don't we start by just talking about you know, this field of energy that you are looking at, which is private energy, this rise in private energy. So when you say there's been a rise in private energy, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think the term private energy can have a few meanings. Um, one of them is that when we think about legal categories, there is what we call public law and what we think of as private law. It sort of um, tells us which kinds of relationships we're looking at. So whereas public law, broadly speaking, is sort of the relationship between you and the government or you and some centralized authority, whatever that may be. In private law, we're thinking about relationship uh, between or among people, um, individuals, or more dispersed sort of decision-making. And I think when you see the categories from that perspective, it's actually very natural to see how that maps onto the transitions we're seeing in energy today. So when you think about the transition from sort of uh, centralized energy to much more distributed energy, if you understand private law as the category that governs these dispersed interactions, that's where you have the sort of dialogue between what we see as energy transitions and these new categories or these old categories of law, actually, that are circling back into um, the discourse in this context. Okay, great. So, and when you talk about a rise in private energy, I think one of the main things you're talking about is uh, distributed energy. So, uh, what what kind of what kind of energy sources are you thinking of? Um, my primary example was a solar panel and sort of doing this research. Um, but there's actually a bunch of other sources of distributed energy um, from small wind turbines, right? Tiny, tiny ones that you can plug into your um, cell phone um, and or ones on rooftops to even um, generators in like university campuses, smart meters, anything basically that is in proximity to where the energy is consumed. Okay, great. So one aspect that you're talking about when you talk about rise in private energy is the rise of distributed energy. So, mm -hmm. but you know, in some instances that's basically parties selling to this overall grid or to an overall utility uh, that in turn distributes it. But you've also talked about peer-to-peer -peer trading in energy a little bit. And you say that's going to make the system even more private, even more distributed. So can you explain to me what peer-to-peer -peer trading is and why someone would want to do that? Absolutely. So imagine that you had an app on your phone that was connected to the solar panel on your roof. And let's say you were out of town for two weeks for your summer holiday. 
you could sell the excess energy on your phone to your neighbor, um, and if the grid is connected well enough, maybe to someone in a town, um, you know, next, close enough to where you live. It's kind of like renting out the spare room in your bedroom through Airbnb. So think about it almost like an Airbnb for energy, um, except you don't need to sell it to, like, the pretend hotel, if we're going with the Airbnb analogy. You just log on to this Airbnb platform and advertise the fact that you will have excess energy between these dates. Um, and you can sell that. And the same would be true if you happen not to be home between 9 and 5 or on a particular weekend and so on and so forth. I, I, I just want to say one thing, though, is that we should understand this all depends on uh, your ability to actually send this to your neighbor. Now, your neighbor is probably easier. Your next-door neighbor is probably easier because you can imagine how the wires are connected. And there are some examples of microgrids um, that – have started piloting this and would uh, facilitate. But the technological hurdle to actually get this fully operational would be to the grid to enable us to send energy uh, privately to the other side of town or the other side of the state for that matter. Okay. So this, you all talk about how this rise of private energy and the importance of private law in energy production is creating a number of issues. And one of the issues that you spend most of the time on in the article is what you describe as the renters problem, which mm -hmm. is the idea that an increasing number of people are living in rented homes at the same time that we are trying to provide more distributed energy from solar on top of rooftops. And those renters typically don't have the authority to put solar on their rooftop. And so maybe that's a roadblock to more uh, distributed solar energy. So let me ask you a couple questions about that. First, why wouldn't owners, if the renters don't install solar panels, why wouldn't the owners install solar panel if they have the ability to put solar on the roof of buildings they own? Great. So um, I use the renters problem as an example of how um, Policymaking in this uh, new era that we live in is affected both by public and private aspects. So the reason that the owner won't invest in solar panels or less likely to invest in solar panels is that in a typical lease agreement, the owner does not shoulder the ongoing cost of use of the uh, property. Uh, which is a way of saying usually the landlord doesn't pay the electric bill. And so the landlord is not necessarily incentivized to invest in something that in the long run will uh, reduce the energy cost for whoever is using the property because the landlord just won't care enough about that at that point in time. Right. And you, in the paper, you talk about, the, this idea from Ronald Coase that mm -hmm. basically it doesn't matter who you give the right to install something because they will bargain about it. And so the landowner, the landowner could simply say to renters, here we go. If it's worth it, I'm going to install this solar and you should see an electricity bill of $20 a month instead of $120 a month. And you should factor that in. But you also describe why there are barriers that prevent that 
bargaining, which we would call cozy and bargaining from happening. And so therefore it can be better to give the entitlement to the person who directly benefits from it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So in theory, it should be possible, but there are many reasons why uh, in practice landowners just won't do that. They won't invest in it. And the reality is that most renters don't have the bargaining power to even put those demands. Um, there are some examples in like commercial settings where uh, Target, for example, has been bargaining um, leases where it will uh, include solar clauses in the lease. But I think that's a pretty rare example given the size of the and the sort of the volume of the commercial um, activity that we're talking about. Okay, so what your solution? You propose a number of solutions potentially to this, but one that you focus on is this idea of distributed energy leases. Could you tell me a little bit about what you mean by that and how those would work? Yeah, so it would be basically a way of giving the owners, remember the problem was that they um, didn't have enough of an incentive to invest. And so we, if we can sort of bake in an incentive for them, that might uh, give them a reason to invest. And the idea would be to have clauses in the lease where the, the benefits of having a solar panel on the roof, as an example, would be split between the tenant and the owner. And that would increase the owner's incentive to invest and hopefully make the owner more likely to invest. And so to be clear, who would that give the entitlement to install the solar panel to? Would that maintain the, the entitlement with the landowner or would it give it to the renter that would still be the landowner so mm, i see yeah um the property aspects of it the property allocation of it circling back to property law uh would not change so unless the owner decides in the lease to grant the tenant rights to make permanent changes to the property that will most likely be retained with the owner do you see uh, any, uh, would you imagine mandating this, or is this something that uh, would just be promoted for, uh, you would ask landowners to put this in their lease? Um, so there are places where it's mandated. Um, there's an example in California, a pretty recent example. Uh, and when you say uh, imagine, I can take that or a few ways, I don't imagine that it's politically feasible to mandate this, to be honest, mm -hmm. uh, at least not in all places. Um, so I imagine, by way of uh, thinking of realistically, um, that it'll start with uh, large commercial owners or maybe like groups of uh, either residential owners in neighborhoods that are more organized maybe university campuses, places where you can sort of, to put it another way, get a little more bargaining power. Um, and then maybe that will be the starting point, and then it can slowly grow from there, absent uh, a, a state-issued mandate or a municipal-issued mandate for that matter. Okay, great. Another aspect of private property law that is important and that you flag in this article is the idea of location-specific rights and resources and mm -hmm. competition for provision. And so 
you look at the example of there is a whole field of private energy, which is oil and gas law. Now, when you talk about private energy, you're mostly talking about the uh, production of electricity. But if you look at oil and gas production, it's very location specific, where the resource is located. And there's competition when you have competing landowners competing to extract the same oil and gas from a shared reservoir. So I wanted to use that as a, a intro to talk about your article on winds of change, which is from the NYU Environmental Law Journal. And in that one, you talk about the problem of people who want to build wind farms in the same area and how a wind farm on one piece of property can affect the wind resource available to that uh, that property owner's neighbor. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, and I think your uh, segue through oil and gas is exactly right because it's a very uh, illustrative and helpful example. So the idea of being location-specific, as you said with oil and gas, is that things have to happen in a particular place. And the difference between wind and oil and gas is that with oil and gas, you have to extract it in one place, but once you've put it in a barrel, um, you can basically take it anywhere. With wind, even once you uh, harnessed it, like you've captured the kinetic energy, you have to convert that into electricity at the exact place where you've uh, taken out the resource. And that means that not only the extraction of the resource, but also the production of electricity all have to be coupled together in the exact same location. And to some extent, that uh, characteristic of wind and also solar energy just means the location, the specificity of the location is just extra, all the more crucial when we talk about it. Um, and in some sense, just like with oil and gas, when it comes to wind energy, we have neighborly interferences, um, and we also have area-wide effects. So if you think of like a wind system as the equivalent of an oil and gas reservoir, except flipped, of course, instead of under the ground, it's way above. If you start extracting uh, kinetic energy, which is wind basically from the system, uh, we're starting to see reports of changes that makes to the entire system. So from uh, changes in level of precipitation to changes in temperature, making the temperatures more extreme, so colder at night, warmer during the day. Um, scientists in modeling are even thinking about larger uh, climatic changes on a global level. Uh, one study, for example, looks at the theoretical potential for uh, wind turbines uh, to have prevented the harm caused by Hurricane uh, Katrina and so on. Um, so that's one aspect, which is the area-wide effect. And you can see why putting up lots of turbines in one area would affect basically everyone in that area. The other one is more, uh, more local. If you go like zoom in further down, if you put up a turbine in one place and I am downwind from you, I'm going to be negatively affected. Or I should say, to be more specific, I'm just going to have less wind. That could be a good thing or a bad thing, but assuming I also want to put up a wind turbine, I would basically just have less energy. Um, 
Another helpful analogy, not to mix in too many, but another helpful analogy is like a river. Or if you take out buckets of a river, I just have less when it comes to me. Um, and so that's where we start getting private law conflicts when it comes to the extraction of the resource, which, as we said, is also coupled in this case with the production of electricity. Absolutely. And you talk in your article about that other private resource conflict, that is water, and you talked mm -hmm. about the two regimes that typically apply to water, one being the uh, riparian method of dealing with it, and the second being the prior appropriation. And could you talk about what those two regimes are and uh, how they would apply to wind and what the costs and benefits of those approaches would be? Sure. So just briefly, just by way of introduction to the water uh, aspect of it, um, riparian uh, water rights are, you can think of them as um, relational or correlational rights. So if uh, we all, you and I and other neighbors, have land abutting a river, we would have to uh, basically share the water um, based on parameters that are um, relational. So um, how much would my taking be for you and etc. Importantly, there is a threshold here, which is owning land that abuts the water, right? So you can't just uh, come as an outsider and be part of the party, so to speak. Um, the other sort of uh, edge, and sorry, I should say geographically, it's typically the eastern United States that applies some form of uh, riparianism. What is typical in the western United States is called prior appropriation. And that, as the name suggests, is basically a first-come, first-serve mechanism. So if I arrive and I put in a well and I start drilling and I take out a lot of water and I use it for irrigation or whatever else, and you come along 10 years later and you want to take out water, you are a junior right user as compared to my senior water rights. So the analogy, if we think about prior appropriation, would be if I put my turbine up first and I claimed my stake, then I would for, forever be senior. And um, I would be uh, incentivized to take as much wind as I can as soon as possible because whatever I take now is going to forever be mine um, and everyone else will have to respect my, um, my senior rights. Whereas if we think of riparianism, um, there is a more relational system where even if I was first and you have uh, a really important use, uh, we, we will need to be considerate of each other. Um, the problem with the prior appropriation, and there are actually a lot of examples from other natural resources, and as you know very well, oil and gas, for example, is that encouraging people to stake um, their claims as fast as and as early as possible just leads to inefficient or excessive extraction. And so broadly, we don't necessarily want that. So that leaves us with something more like riparianism, which in recent decades has evolved into what's known as regulated riparianism. Um, and that's involves more state oversight um, and permitting um, to oversee the allocation 
of these resources with the thought being that obviously they're not impacting just you and I and maybe the next door neighbor, but they have broader area-wide effects. And so we should uh, at least attempt to correlate the scope of the management with the scope of the impact. Uh, All right. Yeah. Well, oh, no, well, thank you so much, Yael. So uh, just to conclude here, I'd love to ask about what your future work that you're planning is on this idea of private energy. Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, so I think of private energy as sort of an umbrella project, which is meant to open the gate uh, for a more extensive dialogue within energy scholarship, uh, which will include both the public law aspects of it and the private law aspects. So one outgrowth, for example, could be thinking about how um, private law-based litigation might play out in this uh, area of either climate or energy. And there's examples of property owners who are bringing claims um, when it comes to climate action. Um, and as more people become involved in this, and basically everyone with a rooftop is going to be a stakeholder, we could see a whole new group of uh, interests or stakeholders being um, requesting a seat at the table or advancing their interest in different ways that will be interesting to follow. So that's one aspect. The second will be thinking about how this plays out in other uh, private law aspects. So I've talked a lot today and focused on property, but you can imagine how um, selling your energy to your neighbor has a lot of contract-related aspects or maybe even tort-related aspects and so on. So I think that is a really another interesting avenue to pursue in this sort of broad project. All right. Thank you so much, Al. Thanks for having me.